0: Of course, we've been considering Colossians chapter 1 recently. Paul, in revealing the reasons for Christ's universal preeminence, has been uh, setting forth the fact that by Christ's bloody death, (coughs) all things were reconciled. Uh, Creation released from bondage and vanity, the angels confirmed and sinners justified having discussed in general terms the nature of Christ's work, Christ's reconciling work, the apostle turned his application directly to the Colossian church, (coughs) reminding them that included in the all things reconciled by Christ are the Colossians themselves. And he was stressing two particular facts in this regard. First of all, that the Colossians had in fact been reconciled to God. It was not a process uh, that they were undergoing over the course of years. It was not something being done to them, but it was an actual historical fact, a thing that had been accomplished, and to remind and stress that this was true, uh, he reminded them of their former estate before they were reconciled to God, showing what a great change had happened, how that they had been uh, aliens not citizens, and that they had been enemies of God, not his friends, and that this enmity had been seated in their ignorant, darkened understandings. They had been in unbelief, and their unbelief and the resulting alienation and enmity toward God had been expressed by their engaging in all manner of wicked works. This was their real historical condition. They were in unbelief, living in wickedness, with enmity towards God, aliens to his kingdom. But of course, a great change had taken place. They could see that themselves. They were no longer in this condition. They were no longer the enemies of God. They were no longer aliens to his kingdom. A great change had taken place. They'd been reconciled. They were friends of God. And he emphasizes, secondly, how this took place. In the body of Christ's flesh through death, Christ had become a man, a real man. He had assumed a human nature with flesh and blood, just like you and I have. And the reconciliation had taken place in the temple of his body. That was the seed of reconciliation where the great exchange transpired. And it took place by death by real death, a bloody crucifixion, Christ giving up his spirit. In this way was this great thing done, reconciliation, the purchase of redemption. And he revealed, thirdly, the purpose for which Christ had reconciled these Colossians. It was not only that they had been reconciled and that they had been reconciled in the body of Christ's flesh through death, but they had been reconciled for a reason. Christ had done so to present them holy Blameless and unarrainable in his sight, Christ was gaining for himself a bride, a bride which he would purify, legally speaking in a moment, so that clothed with his righteousness they stood innocent before God, and actually purifying them over time, so that they would become holy and fitted for the service of God, blameless, without any blemish or fault a perfect specimen, if you will, unarraignable, guiltless, able to stand in court and and be accused and be always counted innocent no matter what the accusation was brought against them. All of these things being legally true from the moment of justification and actually true, uh, actually transformed uh, in a complete way at the glorification of their reunited bodies and souls at the return of Jesus Christ. And so he said, and you that were sometimes alien and enemies in your mind by wicked works, uh, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you've heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister... In the following verse, then, Paul introduces what we might call a sort of condition that evidences whether or not these things are actually true of the Colossians, (coughs) and which gives him an opportunity to remind them of also how they received this reconciliation, which was through the gospel, the original gospel, the one first preached to them, the one of which Paul was made a minister. (coughs) All of these things then as uh, further attacks or defenses against the attacks of these uh, false preachers who had come in and corrupted the truth of the gospel which had been originally delivered to the Colossians. And you, formerly being aliens and enemies in the mind by the evil works, now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and unarraignable in his sight. If indeed you are remaining in the faith, having been founded and steadfast and not being moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, the one announced in all creation under the heavens of which I, Paul, became a minister or a servant. So this verse introduces a sort of condition. It begins with these words, if indeed, if indeed. The first thing we have to understand is what kind of a condition this is. (coughs) Uh, What is this the condition of? And how is it the condition of the thing that is the condition of? To answer this, we have to look back again at uh, the context of what we've been considering. Uh, Just to give a uh, three-sentence paraphrase, Paul has said, Christ is the reconciler of all things. Uh, That's the basic substance of what he's been arguing here in these last few verses. Christ is the reconciler of all things. And then he added to this, he reconciled you, Colossians. Christ is the reconciler of all things. He reconciled you to present you to himself, sanctified. And now he adds this, if indeed you are remaining in the faith. Now, the problem here is that if we use the sort of standard translation that you'll find in in most of the versions, it appears that Paul is saying that their perseverance is a condition of their reconciliation, doesn't it? It appears that he's saying, you have been reconciled if you, are, if, if you remain, if you continue in the faith. If you, if you continue in the faith, you have been reconciled. Or that their continuing in the faith, uh, their reconciliation is dependent upon their continuing in the faith. That's what it, what it looks like, isn't it, if you just give it a surface reading? But that's, of course, impossible. Um, the entire point is that they were reconciled to God while they were enemies. They didn't do anything. They didn't become anything. They didn't pursue anything. They were the enemies of God. And God acted to reconcile them to himself. If reconciliation is conditioned on their faithfulness, then it basically takes everything that Paul has just been saying and turns it on its head. You, He should have said, you can be ultimately reconciled to God if you continue in the faith. That's what he should have said, if that's what he meant. But he didn't say that. Now, some people to escape what appears to be the surface meaning of the text try to say that if you continue, actually modifies to present. Christ reconciled you to present you holy if you continue in the faith grounded and settled. But you still haven't escaped anything by doing that. Then Paul would be saying Christ reconciled you for this purpose, to present you holy to himself if you continue. It just doesn't help. In fact, it doesn't even make any sense. There's an awful lot of commentators who do that. The purpose and fruit of Christ's reconciling work then, which was to present them holy, would be made dependent on their perseverance. And that, that's exactly the opposite of what he's been saying. Mean that Christ's reconciliation actually ensures nothing. It's all dependent on them. If you continue, well, I believe that the answer here is fairly simple. Um, it involves two things. First of all, uh, one of the reasons that this is confusing is because of the word "continue," uh, which we use in a, in a in a in a way modern, which is not exactly what was meant here. The other reason is is the the actual translation of the verb. Uh, it is my conviction that this should not be translated if you continue or if uh, but should be translated if you are remaining. It is what we call the continuous present instead of the simple present. The Greek present normally in fact carries this meaning if you are remaining and, and continue a better. Modern English translation of continue, which I'll explain momentarily as to why that is, is remain. If you are remaining. The point here then is not that their continuing in the faith is necessary for them to be reconciled or for uh, them to have been reconciled, which makes no sense at all. The point is rather that their remaining in the faith and not turning aside is the evidence that Paul's statement regarding the fact that they've been reconciled is true. If they are being moved away from the hope of the gospel, they are providing the evidence that they were never reconciled. Historically speaking, it works like this. They had been pagans, right? And the gospel was preached to them. And they listened to it. And they professed. Belief and reception of the gospel and repentance and they demonstrated a change of life and heart and they were baptized and formed into a church and so to all outward appearances because only God knows the heart of man to all outward appearances and to all charitable expectations it was appropriate to say of them you have been reconciled saved become saints of God in Jesus Christ But now some time has passed since this occurred. And Paul has gotten this report that certain errors have been bothering the church. Certain doctrines have been intruding into the church. Doctrines that displace Christ. Doctrines that corrupt the original gospel and set up other mediators between God and man and teach works and Jewish ceremonies and mysticism. Paul reminds them, no, you were reconciled in Christ unless you have abandoned those first truths, in which case you show that you never knew him. You never truly believed. So their remaining in the faith, then, is a condition, if you will, that evidences that they were truly reconciled to Christ. I think this will be a little more clear as we go on. It's important to also look at a small element of the grammar which you can't bring through in translation, but which is there. Uh, in the Greek language, when you make a conditional statement, by using certain words, you can indicate whether it is an optimistic statement or a pessimistic statement. In other words, whether or not you expect what you are saying is true, or whether or not you expect what you're saying is not true. We, we do that in English um, with things like... Uh, Uh, he went to the store, didn't he? You see, we add those little extra words to indicate that uh, we pretty well believe that he did go to the store. It's an optimistic statement. It's like this in the Greek. This is uh, what you call a first-class condition. It is stated optimistically. Paul uh, believes that this is most likely true of them, that they are, in fact, remaining in the faith. It's not to say that he doubts it. This would be too strong of a word. He has heard about things going on in Colossae that force him to admit that it is possible that some may have abandoned those truths that were first preached to them. But he doesn't think that it's happened. It's not likely. And so we could paraphrase, Christ reconciled all things. Christ reconciled you. If indeed, and I think that this is the case, you are in fact remaining in the true faith. So, it is simply then an evidence that Paul, a necessary evidence that Paul is setting forth that proves that they have in fact been reconciled to Christ, if they are now remaining in the faith. And he thinks that this is the case of them. He's relatively well assured that it's a case, but he has to admit that there's this possibility because of these things that he's heard. Now, what is this condition or this evidence that. Uh, demonstrates so conclusively that they were reconciled to Jesus Christ. And the condition is given very simply. If you are remaining in the faith, and then it is spelled out more explicitly as to what that means. It means being founded and steadfast, not being moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. The word here translated continue, which I've translated remain, is a fairly straightforward. It is most often used, in fact I would say half the usages in the New Testament, relate to people who've been traveling. Uh, if you see the word tarry or abide... In, like, the book of Acts, and I'll show you a couple of those passages, this is most likely the word that's being used. Uh, for example, it'll say, uh, uh, Paul uh, w- journeyed to Ephesus, and he tarried there seven days, or something like that. Uh, he, he went into the house, and he uh, he, he abode, or abode there, or abided, or however you would translate it, uh, three days, four days. It means... And this is why I say that our, our translation of continue is, is somewhat in our modern usage is somewhat misleading because we, we think of the word continue as keep going, where this is this is the concept of staying in one place. To tarry, to abide, it means to stay somewhere, to remain. Truth is like a, a house that we arrive at, if you will. And to stay in the truth, we have to stay at the house. It's not a journey, it's a destination. Uh, just to give you a, a a few of the passages uh, acts chapter 10 acts chapter 10 verse 48 and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the lord and they asked uh, they asked him to tarry certain days to stay there for a while or uh, uh, several times in uh, acts 21 Chapter four, very similar usages. Finding disciples, we tarried there seven days. Or Acts chapter twenty-one, verse ten. As we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet. Uh, twice in Acts chapter twenty-eight, verse twelve, they uh, they tarried three days. Verse twenty-eight, fourteen, for seven days. First Corinthians sixteen, seven, tarry a while. Galatians one, eighteen. Paul went up to Jerusalem. He tarried there, abode there, fifteen days. You get the idea. Um, the word means to remain, to stay put. And that's the use it has when it's used uh, more specifically of uh, uh, applied not to travel but to uh, more religious concepts. Uh, Romans chapter 11, 22 and 23. Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity but toward thee goodness. If you... Continue if you tarry, if you abide in His goodness. Otherwise you shall be cut off, and they also you also shall be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, if they don't remain in unbelief, they'll be grafted back in. You get the idea. It means to to stay somewhere, to remain. Christ reconciled you if you are still abiding, still remaining in the faith, still continuing in that original destination of the truth. And he explains this a little further as to what it is to remain in the faith. What does he mean, remaining in the faith? It's to have been founded and to be steadfast. Uh, This word, having been grounded, it's translated in the AV. Uh, Perhaps the first thing I should say is is I've been translating it founded. It uh, It is the verb form of the word foundation. Always translated foundation in the scriptures, you know, like the bottom of a building. That's what a foundation is, the base of a building. It's something massive, something immovable. Uh, The purpose of, of a foundation is to anchor the building to the ground so that wind and impact won't move the building or blow it away. A foundation that that is inadequate or that is poorly made will result in structural damage to the building when wind or rain or storms come and beat against the house. Matthew 7, we were just reading, the man who who founded his house upon the rock, the wind, the the rain, uh, storm comes and beat against it and it doesn't fall. But the guy who has the inadequate foundation, the one founded on the sand, it's not very stable, it's not strong, it's not massive, so this house is, is, great is the fall of that house. The person that remains in the faith is the one who has been founded. The verb tenses are very important here. Remaining is a present condition, but it has a past cause. They have been founded. Remaining in the faith results from having been firmly founded in the faith. What happens to the shallow-rooted plant? It dries up and blows away, or it's choked out by weeds. But you don't see it at first, you know. Two plants come up, one has a deep root, one has a shallow root, they look just the same. But what happens? One doesn't remain, the other one does. Why? It's because of something that happened before. Something that happened before they ever really grew up. It's a present result with a past cause. Only those who are firmly rooted gospel hearers will abide to bring forth fruit. Now, what is it to be firmly founded in the faith? First of all, it's to hear the true gospel and to believe it and to put it into practice. If you don't hear the truth to begin with, then your foundation is insufficient insofar as your truth was corrupted. If you don't believe the truth, you have no foundation at all. If you hear it, but you don't do it, Your foundation is sand. But primarily here I think Paul is speaking in terms of the content of the gospel that they heard. Because that's what we keep coming back to over and over again here. The original gospel, the message that was preached, the things that were declared. The one that remains, if they are remaining in the faith, it is on account of the fact that they were properly founded in the right gospel to begin with. And that took place when the gospel was first preached to them, not when these other errors intruded. The second description of remaining is being steadfast, uh, firm, immovable. That's what the, the word means better translation than settled. Uh, it's used uh, two other times, 1 Corinthians both times, 1 uh, Corinthians 15:58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable. It's steadfast is the translation, but he explains it by the word unmovable. Also, 1 Corinthians uh, 7, 37. Uh, Nevertheless, he that standeth steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and is so decreed in his heart that he will keep his virgin doeth well. The one that is steadfast is the one that is immovable, the one that has no necessity, the one that has power over his own will, that is resistant to compulsion. It's a cause and effect relationship here also. If you are firmly founded, then you become steadfast. If you are not firmly founded, then you are easily blown about by every wind of doctrine. To be steadfast then is to hold on, to be firm, to be staying in one place. Those things are the opposite of his third description, which is not being moved away. This word is used here only. It's a simple compound, and the meaning is just as simple. It's uh, The one who is not remaining or abiding is the one who by definition is being moved away. A house that is not firmly founded over time will not be steadfast. The house that's sitting loose on the foundation will be moved from one place to another. The gospel hearer that is not firmly founded will not be steadfast or firm under trial or temptation, but will be moved away. Under trial or temptation of false doctrine, they'll be moved away by those forces of error. Now, what is it that they'll be moved away from or not be moved away from, as the case is? It's called two things here. First of all, it's called the faith Second of all, it's called the hope of the gospel. Faith is the broader term, essentially encompassing all the basic truths which would have been delivered to them in the course of evangelistic and foundational preaching. This is narrowed somewhat by the next statement, the hope of the gospel. And we saw way back in verse 5 that uh, the hope of the gospel is essentially the expectation of the pardon of sin and of eternal life in Jesus Christ. And as that culminates and occurs in His return preeminently. It brings also a longing for that day. But it's preeminently the expectation of pardon of sin and reception into eternal life brought by believing the message of the gospel. Peace, reconciliation, righteousness, redemption, God as Father, no condemnation, eternal life, the enjoyment of Jesus Christ forever. This is the hope of the gospel. And so Paul then has set forth these truths. Christ is the reconciler of all things. He reconciled you. At least, uh, this is true if you are still remaining in the faith, having been firmly founded by sound gospel preaching so that you're steadfast against trial and error, and therefore not being moved away from the hope of the pardon of sin that is in the true gospel If this is true of you, Paul says, and I'm relatively certain that it is, then you indeed bear the marks of ones having been reconciled in and through Jesus Christ. And so that's what this verse is all about, or this part of it anyway. Paul, again, as he did earlier in the letter, has taken them back to their entry into the faith. He reminds them that if they were reconciled, it was a reconciliation they received in the original gospel message. And this message was a message that exalted Christ, not diminished Him. It was a message that set forth righteousness and pardon as solely in Him, and not shared with angels or other mediators or yourself. It set forth the way of pardon as faith alone, and not a combination of works and asceticism and mysticism and Jewish law. It was a message that had sharp contrasts, with the insidious errors that they were now hearing. Errors that would rob them of their hope if they believed them. Because it would move them away, move them away from the foundation, the only foundation, and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he wants them to think again of the original gospel, of its message what they had heard, of its fruit, the effect that it had had upon them, how they'd once been enemies, but now totally turned around. As this passage continues, he will will use as additional arguments uh, the universality of that original gospel, which is again a repeat of something we heard before. And then he'll move into the fact that he. this is the gospel of which he was made a minister. He, Paul, the one known throughout all the Gentile uh, 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 world as the preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles. And he explains this. And he uses that as an argument, his own ministry as an argument against the errors that were being brought by these other deceivers, innovators, heretics, ones without authority from God or the apostles, worthy to be rejected. ...and discountenanced. And in a sense, in this condition here, there's, although he's reasonably certain that it's true of him, there's just enough of a warning, isn't there, to say, watch out. You are reconciled if you are remaining in the faith, having been founded and steadfast... ...and not being moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. See, there's just the beginnings of a warning... It's going to become more specific in chapter 2. Beware, he will say, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ, always coming back to Christ in this letter, as Christ was the thing that was being most set aside by the ones who were troubling the Colossians. Always coming back to Christ. You'll see that in the rest of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, all of chapter 2, chapter 3, over and over and over again. And so we have simply a few questions, I think, to ask ourselves in the light of this text. Before, I've asked you to consider the question, have I been reconciled to God? I would now ask you to consider this one. What evidence is there of my reconciliation Is there any evidence? Is it sound evidence? Is it the evidence of our text? And the most important question in this regard is, first of all, what kind of foundation do you have? Are your hopes built upon the original gospel, the word of truth, the gospel preached by Paul and the apostles, or is it another gospel? Is the hope of your gospel pardon of sin? in Jesus Christ, eternal life by faith in the Son of God? Or is it some clever mixture, a little bit you and a little bit God, human goodness, mysticism, a dash of works? Are you firmly founded so as to be steadfast, or are you thrown about by every wind of doctrine, always seeking to hear or to tell some new thing? Are you anchored against temptation? Are you anchored against trials? Are you anchored against false doctrine? Have you been remaining? Or are you being moved away? Remember, there is no substitute for the truth. There is one gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I shall give you rest, the Lord has said.